Hello, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kenji Ross, a strategist at EPAM Continuum. Telemedicine really came into its own with the pandemic, but it's been around for a long time. The Lancet Medical Journal talked about telephone consultations back in 1879. Digitized radiology images were sent over phone lines in the 1940s. Remote psychiatric evaluations were held over closed-circuit television in the 1950s and 60s. NASA started work on a telemedicine and remote monitoring program while preparing astronauts for space travel in the 1960s and later adapted it for rural healthcare delivery in the 70s. Notably, remote medicine advancements were keyed into the advantages each communication medium offered. Verbal advice over the radio, images over phone lines, visual consults over closed-circuit TV. So why do we think about telemedicine today as a strictly video conferencing medium? Dr. Brian Vardabedian, making a second appearance on the podcast, wants us to think a bit more deeply about what he calls remote care. What's the right kind of medicine to practice over video, and what can be done better over the phone or via MyChart message? How do we make sure these new modes of communication don't overwhelm our already stretched medical professionals? How do we make sure slow broadband doesn't cause new inequity? In today's conversation, led by EPAM Continuum Director Jonathan Swersey, we'll hear about these new problems and some ways that remote care is improving the medical experience. Let's dig in. Brian, thank you for, for making some time to, to talk with us again. Um, I am thrilled that in the two years it's been since I got to talk with you last, um, I've moved from calling you Dr. Vardabedian to, to Brian, but with no less respect. Um, so it's great, to have, <laughs> it's great to have you join us again today. Um, I want to start with, 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 with just so, something simple, uh, with something that you and I have talked about recently, which, which is virtual care. Um, and you know, as we know, everyone talks about virtual care. Um, and when they do, I think there's this implicit bias towards video conferencing. Um, but when we spoke, you were much more expansive and you talked about remote care and, and things that include video and telephone and various kinds of texting um, and emails. And I just wanted to get you start start there and tell us a little bit about, about those modalities and do they all have um, a place to play in healthcare as you see it? Yeah, well, thank you for having me uh, on again, Jonathan. And uh uh, I'm 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 thrilled that we're on a first name basis as uh, as always, and so um, yeah, and so this this issue of remote care is interesting. I do use that term remote care instead of telemedicine. Uh, I think telemedicine implies uh, a, a video interface, which is what we typically associate with telemedicine. But when we think about the um, kind of the spectrum of how doctors and patients or providers and patients can connect, it's a little deeper than just video. Um, we have uh, asynchronous uh, text messaging. We have, of course, telephone that we've been using for years. Um, and um, uh, live texting and messaging. And so there are different ways that we can connect. Uh, we can connect with data. Uh, patients can share and send data. And so there's different ways that patients can be remote and telemedicine is only one of them. And I think the, the reason that it's important to think about the different modalities of remote care is because different circumstances call for different modalities. And every startup that has a texting application wants to simplify and say all medicine can be done by text and all the, uh, the uh, video teleconferencing uh, applications uh, really want to 
believe that have us to believe that we can do everything by by video. But certain problems call for certain solutions, and I think that's one of the challenges we're facing now. We have this embarrassment of riches of of, of technology. That's great, and I, I appreciate you get, getting us start started off there. I I know. You know, in my own work, um, as new technologies have come on board, um, oftentimes it's it actually becomes the tyranny of too many options. Um, rather than simplifying my life, my life oftentimes gets more complicated. Um, I literally, you know, I say this having thousands of emails in my inbox um, that I think <laughs> remain, you know, remain unread um, as we've adopted more of a Teams-led communication channel for, for many things. And right. I'm just curious about about how that has worked for for you and your in your practice um, and and in healthcare from a provider's perspective. Frankly, Jonathan, it's been a real challenge. Um, to your point, there is this uh, abundance of, of tools. If we just talk about communication, even even within within my group, um, you know, a, a good example uh, is uh, our adoption of Teams. We're using Microsoft Teams to kind of communicate with our nurses and even among the doctors. Uh, Epic has a um, an application for sending a mail and messages they've had for years and they introduced a messaging application on top of that. So we had a situation where some of our providers were messaging me on Teams, some were messaging me on the Epic message application um, and others were using the original uh, Epic messaging uh, tool. So one of the problems we're facing is uh, these tools get released to us as providers without any real instruction or discussion or dialogue about how we're going to use these tools. Um, and so it's a, it's a problem of what I call governance, which is, uh, you know, deciding where and how uh, these applications should be used. Another great example is my chart messaging. Um, if anyone uses uh, or sees a provider that or a hospital system that uses Epic their portal uh, allows uh, communication via my chart messaging. Now, when this was flipped on or turned on by our um, IT leadership, we all just started using it and patients started using it. And the net result was we started getting patients sending us 5,000 word messages. Oh, wow. Yeah. With all kinds of, all kinds of stuff into it. And, and uh, it honestly has led to some, some issues because docs really don't know how to control it once you open it. Uh, and so one way we could have handled it would be to take this tool, take this MyChart messaging application and say to patients, this is for three or four kinds of messages, getting your meds refilled, asking for a test result, simple binary kind of things, and then tell docs, like, this is how we're going to use it. This is, we're not going to replace patient visits with MyChart messages. And that conversation never happened, and it's led to sort of this. Uh, it, it contributes to burnout because we get these lots and lots of messages every day, and we re- really don't know how to control it. And are you? I'm just curious as you get like more modalities, right? You add, yeah. You know, there's now Epic messaging. You then move to Teams, and some people are using Teams for other things. And then there's my chart messaging for communication with patients, and patients may or may not know how to use it. Mm-hmm. Like. Um, how, how much of your time is now going towards towards managing across all these disparate channels? And how does that, how is that, what's your reality like for these days? So 
I'll answer that by saying a, a lot of time. Um, and, and I think um, the, the kind of the onus is on me is to sort of control the, the signals that are coming in and decide how I'm going to handle these. So personally, I'm sort of training my patients to use Epic in a, uh, my chart messaging in a certain kind of way so that it kind of uh, saves me. And so that's one way I'm handling that. I have a partner that does a lot of stuff on my chart with my chart messaging. And so during cross coverage, it becomes a challenge because we have different ways of using the very same tool. Again, this comes down to sort of a failure of governance over this tool. Uh, but to your point, medicine in general, uh, the, the biggest challenge we're facing is information. There's this crisis of information. And if we look at information from all kinds of angles, uh, this is just information coming from patients, the messages, the messages coming from my associates, um, data coming from patients via uh, peripherals that they have or measurements that they're taking of themselves. And so um, there's this constant stream of information and the challenge for us is sort of how do we harness that? How do we consolidate that to certain times of the day? Uh, it's almost a design problem. It's like how do we how do we control this flow of information? Yeah, it reminds me, you know, a while ago, um, I had done some work in a, in a couple of different therapeutic areas. One was working with a company that manufactures um, internal defibrillators and, and pacemakers. Um, another was with a, a company that made blood glucose meters. And in both instances, they were really interested in patients being able to share the data from their devices. Right. And, and, and so there was this huge effort and initiative to say, hey, we're going to make this data available to physicians. Um, now, I'm sure you can imagine how that played out when they when they started opening up that data. What do you what do you think happened? Uh, there was a lot of data coming in, right? Yeah, yeah. There was a, there was a ton of data, and and most doctors that we knew at that time didn't even know what to do with it all. Um, what matters? What doesn't matter? It was it was your governance problem uh, right. that, that you talked about. Right. We saw the same thing with the with the Apple Watch with rhythm detection on the Apple Watch. I think it was a Series Four, and uh, Doc started getting rhythm strips being sent to them by email. And then there was this whole other thing emerging from this, like who is there, is there liability? If you, if you get a, get a strip at 445 on a Friday afternoon with something concerning and it lands in your email inbox, like, is there a liability with that? And who, and who also, who owns that data? Who's responsible for it? And it opens up all kinds of issues that we never really talked about. And the technology is really ahead of our, our capacity to control them or our institutional standards or our, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It, it makes a ton of sense. Is that, is that governance, is that something that should incur at an institutional level or is it something that needs to include like pan institution? You know, is there, mm -hmm. do they need to be like, like more, more standards based or is it something that needs to vary to meet that, that particular instance? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and it's a discussion that I had with some of the folks at Epic actually around my chart messaging. And one of the questions was, should Epic have done more at the root level to sort of educate end users how to use my chart messaging? And I think personally, I think that um, the way practices communicate with patients uh, varies so much uh, across specialty and across institutions that I think it's really hard to set universal standards for a communication tool. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, there's a saying, you never know how a tool is going to be used by the end user. 
Yep. Um, and I guess as designers, you know that. Uh, and so to that point, um, I think it probably lands in the realm of the institution or uh, the practice group, be it, be it pediatric gastroenterology, adult oncology, to sort of kind of create their own local standards for this. Oh, that's great. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let me shift gears just a, a little bit. Um, you know, if we look at the last couple of years in, in healthcare, um, we've seen a shift in the modality by which care is, is delivered, right? And a, and a lot of that was out of necessity. So we moved from, you know, face-to-face was was the was the, the, the default, right? You'd go into the doctor's office, wherever they were, for your whatever appointment you had, um, to, to one that's really been remote first. Um, and that's been, you know, by by practical necessity in the face of the pandemic. It's been driven by supportive changes in policy. Um, I'm curious from, from your perspective, as you think about that time frame, what have we gained from the shift and what have we lost? Um, so I think um, I think we've gained access, which is really important. <clears throat> if we take the example of a of a, of a child who receives a liver transplant and lives down in the valleys in deep South Texas, it's easier for them to visit with us, quote unquote, uh, than driving six hours um, with their, 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 with their sick child. So we've improved access. Uh, but one thing that's really important is whenever we, we put an interface between a provider or a doctor and the patient or the parent, um, something gets lost. Something is always lost. And so I think we could say that there's, there's an element of, of human connection that we lose virtually. We don't always need that. Sometimes it's a simple transactional dialogue, child's having a fever, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we're, we, we miss some of the, the subtle visual cues that, that, that I depend upon so often, especially with a new patient evaluation. So while I think we've gained access, which is which is key in many situations, we've lost some element of human connection, which in other circumstances can be really critical. Hmm. Yeah, that's a inter- interesting. And how would we, like, if you think about reconciling those two things, right? Like, the the the, the increase in access and that something that gets lost through that interface or intermediary, like how do you reconcile those two, do you think? Well, I mean, some of the loss is just due to a failure of technology. Um, I have patients, uh, indigent patients from East Texas using dated iPhones over broadband uh, cell uh, networks that are choppy. And so it's a technology failure that I can't quite see them and see their expression the way I would like to see them. So there's a technology piece, but even in the face of a perfect connection and, and, and a patient in a house with a great camera, et cetera, something is still lost. So I think it comes down, again, this also comes down to governance and deciding what what modality of connection you need, you need to get the job done. Um, I, I think a new diagnosis of Crohn's disease in a teenager or a critical conversation about um, transitioning to palliative care in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a person who's struggling with cancer. These are critical conversations, I think, that require uh, a more intimate connection, and it requires uh, 
seeing and processing those subtle visual cues and things that happen when two humans are connected together in the same room. That's different from uh, maybe a, a child who calls in with a rash uh, due to an antibiotic that was started recently. You can see the rash on the camera. It's a simple transaction. We change the antibiotics and we move on. So it's a matter of deciding Sometimes we don't need that granular human detail. We don't need that granular connection. Sometimes we can do it just on a telephone call or an asynchronous text where it's a simple question, a simple binary thing. And that's where the patients get confused because they want to do a, they sometimes want to do a deeper dive on my chart. And it's something that requires back and forth, a discussion and, and query. And the, and the family doesn't understand that I got to go deeper with this. I can't have a simple I can't use a simple transactional thing to do this deep dive. I need to see you or at least do a video connection. To, to uh, So it's a matter of choosing, I think, choosing the right tool and uh, selecting the right tool and helping patients understand that we use different tools for different problems. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's really interesting to, to, to think about. And I'm just, I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, like as, as a provider in the way that you practice medicine and what motivated you to go into medicine um like what was your you know your expectation for like what's lost right from from because you talk about the transactional nature some of these things can be really solved by text is that fulfilling for physicians to do that or talk, like what, what what does that mean to the to the provider experience i you know Jonathan, i think it really depends i think there are circumstances where i have you know, I have long established patients that, like I said, in certain circumstances, something, something, you know, really kind of not so great is happening and we really need to sit down and talk about it. That's very different from needing to contact me for a medication refill. When you mm. think about those things, they're, they're very different. The, the needs, the human needs are very, very different in those, in those situations. And so, um, to me, I don't, I don't have a problem because I think that a problem with that, that asynchronous text for the child or the parent that needs the refill, it's a perfect solution. It's great. Uh, again, I think it's when, when we get mixed up and use the wrong tool for the wrong problem that the things get really kind of challenging and difficult. And, um, you know, for me, that can be, that can be really unsatisfying and that, um, um, yeah, it, it's just as we very unsatisfying, I probably would say. And I'm curious, just to sort of bring that back to the gold standard, which was you know always face to face care, right? That's what we did before we had these new technologies. Are there ever points in your view where face to face is the wrong technology, so to speak, for the wrong problem? That's a great question. Is there? It's turning the whole thing upside down, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. so it's interesting. Um, so obviously during COVID. Uh, we, we had, and we still do have patients that uh, turn up COVID positive and have an in real life visit for something very important, but we can still do the visit uh, virtually with the individual infected. So, um, you know, we can get 80% of what we need or that sort of thing, which is better than nothing. So that's probably a situation uh, where, where patients immobile, uh, or infectious and and can't be can't be in real life. Interesting. Okay. No, I mean that that that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think it's something to think about 
for the future as the technologies become more you know, more developed and maybe in some ways more permanent, but what that's going to change for the delivery of care. Um, so, you know, one of the things John here is, is the, the interests and needs of the patients as well. We want to meet patients where they're at. And it's so funny as, as anyone who has teenagers now knows uh, teens are more comfortable with text exchange than they are with in real life uh, interactions. Um, I was reading uh, one of the communications profs from NYU said about his kids. Um, let's try to get this quote right. Um, if a human has to get involved with a transaction, something terribly, something's terribly wrong. Hmm. Uh, meaning that sometimes if we have to have a, a face-to-face interaction, that means something has kind of failed. Um, and so that's kind of the mindset of, of the generation going forward. So we have to be, be sensitive to what the interests are of the end user. Uh, and we could conceivably face a population of patients that uh, are uncomfortable with in real life interactions or human interactions, or even the sensation of touch. Hmm. Uh, so we have to be aware of that and understand the needs of the patients as well. Hmm. Touch is a really interesting example. Um, I don't know, maybe there is a way, maybe some of my colleagues are working on it to, to mimic touch remotely, but how important is touch? Well, touch, you know, touch is a form of, it's a form of communication. Um, initially, if we go back 50 years or 100 years, touch was critical to the diagnostic process. We only knew what we knew by physical examination. Um, this was even in the, in, the, in the days before diagnostic imaging or even radiography. Um, we learned by touch Fast forward, uh, a lot of what we used to do with our eyes and our ears and our hands has been replaced by diagnostic technology. We put patients in a scanner, we put them Mm. in a machine, and we can identify far more than we can ever determine with our fingers. Mm. Um, Now, so where does that leave touch? And I I, I think touch becomes sort of a critical form of, of, uh, of communication and connection. I'll give you an example of my dad who died at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute from metastatic squamous cell carcinoma. He had horrible disseminated um, uh, skin cancer, disfiguring in his face and upper, upper torso. And he had a great plastic surgeon and, and uh, one of the, one of the, after the doc had left, uh, my dad said to me, um, you know, he, he's just, he's just so amazing. He's not afraid to touch me. And, you know, my dad was so disfigured that Mm. people would stand five feet back away from him because he was hard to look at. But this plastic surgeon Mm -hmm. who knew the touch was, was, was essential to connection always made a sense to run his fingers over my dad's shoulders and things like that. Almost as if he was examining him, even though I, I knew as a doc, he wasn't, but it was a unique form of connecting with my dad. And so, I think touch has become an important way uh, to establish, you know, to 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 maintain that human connection and confidence and uh, and comfort. Yeah. Thank you for for sharing that that very personal story, and and I'm sorry that your your father had to go through that. Um, I am I am truly sorry. Yeah, no, I think it's I think this is the experience of a lot of people with disfiguring skin disease. 
Um, docs don't want to, people don't want to touch them. Nurses, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, some, some of these skin diseases are tough and, um, anyway, but thank you. But it was interesting to, to watch and hear and see that and, um, try to make sense of it all, you know? Yep. Um, I want to come back to something you were, you were talking about earlier, which was the, the potential for, for remote care to promote, you know, access and maybe health equity, right? You were talking about, you know, patients, you know, deep in South Texas um, who might be six hours away with a liver transplant or people who live in East Texas who have sort of fragile technology, yeah. um, you know, right? as a, but still as a way to, to promote access for, 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 the, for those patients. Um, other, other folks who I talk to sometimes say, see the potential for virtual care to create an even more stratified healthcare system. And I'm wondering how we think about reconciling that tension. Boy, that's a that's a tricky one, Jonathan. In terms of creating real equity, um, there is a divide with technology. We see that with broadband access. That's probably, I would say, the the single unifying problem creating that division in my world is access to. To, to good broadband. So I think if we were to <clears throat> address that issue, and I think President Biden has initially committed to working on that, uh, I think that would solve a, a, a large chunk of the, of the issue. Beyond that, it gets, it gets very tricky um, because there's, there are other, there's so many appliances and tools involved in telemedicine and to suggest that everyone is going to have instant access um, I've seen programs at public libraries where there are tel- where there are high quality telemedicine connections, hmm. where patients can come in and use a, uh, a private room hmm. um, to sort of make up for uh, the fact that the family may not have uh, reliable electricity or reliable broadband. So that may be a you know public commons areas where people can go in and use uh, use connection may be a solution to this. Hmm. No, that's great. That's great. Um, I want to share a quote with you from a from a from a physician. Um, so it's I'll just read it to you. We we really serve two masters. Uh, we are morally and ethically obligated to that child who's under our care, while at the same time we have an obligation to the surrogate or the parent who's bringing that child in. And so that was um, actually from you. And that was from the last time I spoke <laughs> with really. you. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, and I'd like to revisit that quote um, in the context of, of, of remote care and talk about, you know, serving those two masters and what that means um, from, from a, a remote or virtual care perspective. Yeah, um, that's a that's a great question. So if you go to the the, the core issue of caring, um, working with surrogates, um, geriatricians deal with this, uh, pediatricians deal with it. Um, that we work through, you know, we work through other parties to help the patient. And, um, you know, it's, it, it can be challenging sometimes because parents bring their own interests and their own agendas to the exam room. And so we have to separate the needs of a child f- from the needs of the parent or the interests of the parent. Similar with geriatricians that there, there can be conflicting interests between uh, an, an aging son and, and, and his mother. Mm. Um so if we, you know, I don't think it's a lot different with um, with remote care, except I think that um, I will tell you that oftentimes the connection that I have during remote visits 
is very heavily weighted towards the parent or the surrogate and um, probably less so towards the, towards the child. It's sometimes hard to see them. It's hard to get, get them both in frame. Mm. Um, um, things like this. So I think it's a, a little bit of a compromise and, but I think at, at the root, at the root, it's still, we're still dealing with that same conflict. We still have the parents uh, of the child with autism who wants their child to have an endoscopy because of something they read about the measles vaccine um, or whatever. So I don't think the technology changes that, but it can sometimes amplify it. That's interesting. And that, that amplification, I'm just curious, you know, because pediatrics is so expansive. Right. It's from the youngest babies up until, you know, right. you get teenagers to, you yep. know, close 18, sometimes even longer if it's a pre-existing condition. Um, is that different across those age groups for you? In the uh, attention? Yeah, it, it can, you know, it's hard to pin down a toddler to sit in front of a, in front of a screen, obviously. Uh, and then we'll get teenagers who don't want to be on the same screen with their parents because they're embarrassed, you know, because, dad's a dork or whatever, you know? Uh, so, so, you know, I mean, all the things that we deal with, 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 with kids. And so, um, the issues that, uh, kids have due to their developmental age, as well as the, the, their, their relationship with their parents as teenagers can come to bear in in a remote, uh, connection. And again, it'd be hard to reconcile that through a screen. Whereas in an exam room, um, we, you know, I often ask parents to leave the room to have private discussions with, uh, with teens, um, in, a, you know, in a, in a remote situation, it's really hard to do that. Um, and it can be a very, it can be very important with, uh, with teenagers. So these are some of the things we're, cha- you know, we're, we're challenged with remote care. And, um, again, I think despite some of those challenges, improvement in access, um, um, offsets that. And the technology may improve over time too. We may, may have, you know, multiple, multiple screens or multiple interfaces and technology at home is going to change in advance as well. Yeah. I could imagine, you know, if you think about some of the, the, the commercial installations, right, that you see in a business context that maybe some of those things will be brought into healthcare where they do manage, you know, conference rooms and things like that with multiple people speaking. Right. Yeah. Right. And that, that just improves the experience and, and I think during a, a prior conversation, I discussed this idea of the uh, the fatigue that I feel after doing six hours of telemedicine, and we 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 might have talked about the the reason for that, and it, it's it's because I'm squinting through this camera trying to find the subtle visual cues about what's what 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 the what the patient's experiencing, and that that kind of quest and that strain to kind of pick up those cues that I'm so used to when you can't get them, it's exhausting. That's interesting. Yeah. You did, you did talk about that with me previously and I thought it was um, such a powerful image. I don't know if, if patients or parents tend to think of telemedicine as harder or hard for providers. Um, So I, I thought that was a very powerful image that you, that you shared. Yeah, no, it's true. And we, we probably appropriately think about the patient experience with all this. And we don't, you know, we don't think as much about um, the, the provider experience, which, you know, it, it, it becomes important ultimately. Um, design of interfaces, workflows, all those things are so important and contribute so significantly to the, the sensa- this idea of burnout that we, we talk so much about. 
Interesting. You know, as we think about the changes in remote care and virtual care, one of the things as an industry we've seen is just the explosion of interest. Right. And it seems sometimes to me like it's it's not just health health systems, but you know even online retailers or insurance companies or pharmacies are starting to get involved um, and wanting to stand up their own virtual care or remote care kinds of offerings. And I'm just I'm wondering if you have a perspective on who's doing who's doing it well right now, like who's doing the best you know best in class experience today. Um, and is there anyone who's getting involved with virtual care or remote care who, you're, who just makes you scratch your head? You know, I think that um, the, the the biggest problem is that, yeah, everyone everyone's everyone's jumping on board to offer telemedicine. Um, and I again, I think the biggest problem that I've seen is the the people that want to sign up to see a doctor in California for a sore throat and um, they want to pay $30 to do it. Um, I think these, so I, so I think these, these on-demand things are a real challenge because I think telemedicine is just a tool for us to connect with our providers. I don't think it, I'm not sure it's as revolutionary as we think it is. I think the real, the real benefit comes from the, um, the kind of the team approach where, um, we, we, we have a relationship with a doctor or, or a team of doctors and um, telemedicine connection when needed becomes like a really helpful and important tool for improving access. Uh, so I think that the on-demand stuff I think is a challenge and I think everyone wants to try to make a quick buck doing that. Yeah. Um, Crossover Health I think has, has done a great job with this and they provide um, clinical solutions to large corporations um, with, with this team-based care model that uses heavy text messaging um, modalities as well as video, but it's all done sort of in one continuum. It's not telemedicine or nothing. So I think that's really where it's done well. Interesting. And so are they sort of shepherding people to the right sort of modality for the level of the question that they have? Meaning like, you know, doing more text-based, trying to get people to use more text-based where text can work versus video, or tell me about that a little bit. You know, Jonathan, I don't know exactly how they make that decision whether to engage with text or video. That's a great question. I just don't, I don't know the company well enough to say, to say that, but apparently they've, 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 they've got a good system going on. Jay Parkinson um, sold his, his, he had a, a, a texting application called Sherpa, was acquired by crossover. I know Jay and we've had numerous conversations about it, but Jay Parkinson knows a great deal about this and he's a, he's a great person to ask, but, um, uh, crossover covers, they, I think they work with Apple and, um, Amazon and, and, and others and provide this sort of, uh, care for their employees, uh, in this, uh, very unique kind of boutique atmosphere. Interesting. Okay. Um, and we've been talking a lot about, you know, the technology and helping to bridge this connection between providers and patients in different ways, right? Yeah. Um, there's another area that I think is garnering a lot of interest that maybe is complementary to it, um, which is bringing care closer to home, right? So and that's where you see companies like, you know, Humana acquired uh, Kindred Health for, mm -hmm. uh, I think it was about $8 billion. Um, Walgreens and 
or Walgreens Health, you know, they've made significant investments in that space through Village MD and CareCentrics. Um, but you know, these efforts have been focused on physical presence in the community. And I'm wondering about how you find the right, you know, that right balance. Like how could remote care complement those initiatives? Are they alternatives? Like how do you think about these efforts to get care closer to home versus remote care? Again, John, I think these all these modalities are just tools. Uh, they're tools that can um, fill in blanks for when we for when we need them. Uh, again, um, I think you know you look at these these com- these companies that provide home care. Uh, they all started with uh, in real life hand to hand mano a mano care, and I think the technology is advancing such that we can uh, begin to remotely monitor patients. So what required a, a, a 24-hour nurse uh, might be something that only requires a nurse to be there 18 hours a day or 12 hours a day because of the advances in, uh, advances in uh, remote care monitoring. So I think to see it as sort of a binary thing as all or none or all remote or all in person uh, again is kind of maybe the wrong way to look at it, but we need to look at these tools as sort of um, complementary to the, the, the in real life care that we provide or allowing us to break away or, or, or do more remotely. So I don't know what the right balance is to answer your question, but yeah. uh, it's also changing too. As the technology changes, it's the, the, that answer is going to change as well. The uh, technology is changing. I think some policy enablers are being you know, looked at again on um, things that were developed in, in, in the pandemic that facilitated some of this for sure. Yep. Um, so lo- lots of uncertainties in, 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 in the future. And opportunity. And, and opportunity, right? I think that's, 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 that's a great point. And I think that it takes you know, bo- both of those things to navigate this, this course. Right. Um, so you know, speaking of uncertainties and, and opportunities, um, I'd like to explore what, one last um, you know, but, but specific area where I've been thinking about remote care um, and see if you, if you have a reaction to it. So, and, and that's really in, 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 the, in regards to, to women's health. Um, I think you know, it's probably no secret, it's, it's widely talked about that, that we're facing a potential shift in women's health um, based on you know, the leaked opinions from, from Mississippi versus Jackson Women's Health Standard. Um, and women's health, excuse me. And, and I'm wondering, uh, is there a role that remote care could have in the context of, of this kind of a potential new reality? Um, is there a role that, that remote care should have in, in a, a shift of this, of this size and scope? Uh, well, it's a great question. Um, I think was specific, specifically referencing the Supreme Court, um, I, you know, I think I'm not sure it would re- remote care would replace uh, would 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 replace you know what we're talking about. Um, I think you know, one of the other challenges we we face is is of course uh, licensing across state lines, which is a yep. a huge impediment to providing care outside of local jurisdiction. Um, so I think it could provide a, a very interesting bridge to a new kind of care, a new kind of access to care that wasn't previously available to women um, in, in, a, in an earlier age. So I'd have to think about that, but that's a very interesting question. This, is, this has been a really great, great conversation um, in, in my view. I, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us again. 
No, absolutely. And it's uh, so much fun exploring some of these big picture issues with you. And I love the way you think about things. And I always love talking to designers because the way they see the world is so, so important. And I think a lot of the problems that we're currently facing in healthcare are design issues and human design issues. And what y'all are doing is so critical to the success of the things that I do. So thank you. Well, th thank you. And you make us better. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about patients, but we think a lot about providers. If I can help keep one provider practicing for a few more years, um, then I'm making a difference on thousands of people's lives. So thank you. I'm in. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks are due to our guest, Dr. Brian Vardabedian, for his excellent bedside manner. He was interviewed by EPAM Continuum's Jonathan Swersey. Ken Gordon is our esteemed producer. Kit Palalis is our sound engineer. And I'm your host, Kenji Ross. Until the next one, thank you. Thank you.